This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this, I think I'll call it a special edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. We don't have a guest today. We've run into travel arrangements, I guess. Problems with that. Uh, the guest that was scheduled for today, um, Ron James, will show up on the 29th of June, and we will discuss his movies and his association with MUFON and his investigations into UFOs at that time. And those of you who tuned in last week to see um, Mike Schratt, we were moving the studio and had to uh, reschedule him and he will be on next week. So we've got it all set up. Today, I'm gonna to talk about UFO hoaxes. And before you all tune out, let me say, these are the government hoaxes. These are the ones that they've created to kind of fool us about UFOs. And we'll get into that in just a minute. One of the things I wanted to talk about and something I don't really understand, and maybe somebody can help me with this. I've got a couple of books on Roswell that just came out not that long ago, Roswell in the 21st century, of course, and Understanding Roswell, which is officially coming out in a couple of days. It's been available on Amazon for a number of number of weeks. One of the problems is I'm looking at the truth of Roswell. What really happened there? What, uh, what can we learn about that? What do we really know? And it gets buried behind some of the sensational books. And I think of, of things like... Um, Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, in which he basically made up everything, has no relevance to what happened at Roswell. It plugs him into part of the scenario when he was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas in 1947, and how the convoy from Roswell to Wright Field carrying the alien bodies stopped for what we'd call a remain overnight, a run in Fort Riley. And he had an opportunity to basically break into the top secret area where the uh, materials were stored, uh, and look into a crate and see an alien body. This makes no sense to me because in uh, Army aviation, we usually treat, treated, treated, tread, treated the aircraft as um, vehicles, I mean, trucks. In, in Vietnam, if we wanted to go somewhere, and I was in an aviation unit, we didn't get into a convoy with trucks and jeeps and all that. We took a helicopter. Didn't matter what we were going to do. We just took a helicopter because it was that much easier. Roswell, of course, had all kinds of aviation assets. If you're going to move the bodies from one location to another, you don't put them on a truck. You put them on an airplane. And they had both uh, cargo planes and B-29s, which you could use the Bombay to carry materials. So his story about seeing the body at Roswell didn't make any sense. And yet people are enamored by that book. I look at our job, my job, in investigating the Roswell cases, here is the truth. Here's what we know. I uh, remember reading not that long ago about a fellow who was on the flight line in Roswell 1947, a mechanic, a low-ranking mechanic, and he said he had access to all aspects, uh, aspects of the flight line. And I'm thinking, no, I was an intelligence officer in an Air Force unit. 
I didn't even have all access to the flight line. I could get on the flight line. I could go to specific areas that related to my job, but I didn't have access to the entire thing. The only people who would have had that kind of access were the uh, commander, the deputy commander, the operations officer. So this guy was talking about how he was uh, had access to the whole entire flight line, which of course I think is untrue, but that he was chased out of one area one day by the MPs and he had been looking in the bomb bay of a B-29 and saw this object he described um, as being about 13 feet long and seven feet uh, in diameter, maybe 13 feet in some conference, something like that. You know, a big bulbous nose that uh, tapered down to the tail fins. And he thought this might have been some kind of a uh, probe, a rescue craft, a, an escape pod for the uh, UFO at Roswell. But this happened in 19, uh, November of 1947, I should say. And the clue here was it was a silver plate B-29. And those of you who've studied your history, and I know there's a lot of you out there, you know that the silver plate B-29s had been especially modified to carry the atomic bombs. And when you look at what the atomic bomb looked like in 1947, and remember 1947, the size and shape of the atomic bomb was classified information. Um, it was basically an MK-3 atomic bomb, which is mimicked a uh, fat man that was dropped in Japan at the end of the Second World War. What he described was basically, a, a, I guess you'd say, a life-size mock-up of an atomic bomb. It wasn't an escape pod. And yet you read about it in some of the UFO literature about how this escape pod had been stored in Roswell for months on end, I suppose. Um, I think we have a solution there for that. It, it, we know what it is. And I, I think that if you want to know what happened at Roswell, you need to take a deep look at the information that's been published and what the sources are and who the re, uh, researchers are and what the witnesses said and what the documentation says. And this is what I've attempted to do in both uh, Roswell in the 21st century and understanding Roswell. You get a much better look, a clearer picture of what happened. In understanding Roswell, for example, I have biographies of the top officers there, which I don't think anybody has done to this point. So you understand who they are and what their thinking was and what happened to them. Uh, during their military careers and how they got associated with all of this sort of thing. So I think if you want to look at the Roswell case, uh, you need to take a look at that. But what I wanted to do today is talk about the UFO hoaxes that the government has per uh, perpetuated on those of us who um, study this. And I think one of the first hoaxes you get to is Project Sign which was obviously the first investigation. But when the Air Force announced it, they called it Project Saucer. Most of the material was classified, at least uh, confidential, maybe as high as secret. And sign existed until the ETOS, which is the estimated uh, estimate of, um, uh, oh, I can't remember. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming Biden here. What can I tell you? estimate of the situation. I don't know why I stumbled on that. Anyway, it was a document created by Air Force officers at Project Sign who were then stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at the time, Wright Field. And what they determined was that the UFOs were interplanetary. They weren't thinking in terms of interstellar. They were thinking of ter in terms of interplanetary uh, because they understood the distances. It went up to the chief of staff of the Air Force who lo looked at it and said, you don't have it. You don't have the information here. You cannot prove this case. You don't have quite enough. And, and at that point, sign degenerated into a debunking thing. And in 1947 or 1948-49, they did a final report on Project Sign. 
uh, which was classified at the time, but they said, here's our final report. We've, we've completed the investigation and that's it. That was a lie. It was a hoax. They didn't complete their investigation. They completed a part of it. They renamed the project Grudge and continued to march. Did the same thing in 1951. Um, said that Grudge was uh, closed. We've investigated. We couldn't find anything there and it's closed, but it became Project Blue Book and Ed Ruppelt was the... Um, man in charge of it at that time. But this was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. So what we need to do is uh, take a look at all of that sort of thing and see that kind of the Air Force hoaxes, the government hoaxes at that time was talking about what it was said in the um, uh, these reports and how they issued the reports and how their conclusions were drawn. And we can see the manipulation of the data there. And it was designed specifically to convince people who were not on the inside that there was nothing to the, the UFOs. We move on from that in, um, sorry, in July of 1952. There was a whole bunch of UFO sightings throughout the United States. In fact, Project Blue Book uh, gathered 1,500 sighting reports in 1952, and of those 303 were unidentified. This is the largest number of reports they received in a single year and the largest number of unidentifieds they received in a single year. The outgrowth of this was the sightings in Washington, D.C., which called the Washington Nationals with um, airline pilots seeing the UFOs, fighters intercepting them. They're seen on radar. There's all kinds of that kind of information going on, and the president was involved. The outgrowth of that was something called the Robertson Panel. Robertson was a highly thought of scientist in the 1950s, and he chaired this investigation into the UFOs. And I think this is one of the very first obvious government hoaxes. What happened is over the course of five days, Robertson and his hand-picked panel, all of them suggesting that UFOs were not extraterrestrial, that there was no spaceships involved, they were something mundane. They all had that attitude, and some of them were rabidly anti-saucer, anti UFO. They investigated this for five days. They watched the movies, the Montana movie, which we've discussed here before, the Tremonton movie, which uh, was taken by a uh, naval officer in 1952, watched all of that, decided that they were explainable in various ways. And after the final um, meeting on Friday afternoon, they all dispersed the next morning, Robertson shows up and he's got the, a draft of the final report. Some, somehow between the end of the meetings, which broke up at seven, five or seven, six or seven o'clock at night, and the next morning, he's already got the final draft written and it's signed by two of the project members. This tells us that that draft was written before they concluded their investigation. And I bring this up simply because what the government had done there or what Robertson had done there was create a document that suggested there was nothing to this. There's no good evidence for it. We needed to get away from the mystery of UFOs. We needed to debunk the UFOs, which I guess the term debunker comes from, and that uh, teachers should, should not allow students to do reports on flying saucers. Students should not be allowed to do book reports on books written about UFOs. It's to... Um, take the mystery out of UFOs so we can stop talking about it. This was the first great UFO hoax by the government to stymie research into UFOs and interest in UFOs, thinking that they would all go away. When we come back here in just a moment, 
I'm going to talk a little bit more about this and some of the other things the government did to control the data and some other projects that turned out to be more or less um, government hoaxes and UFOs. I will be back right after this, so please stick around. And uh, I'm back, isolated, I might say, by myself. I wonder if it has something to do with my uh, topics today. Anyhow, I'm all alone here talking about UFOs and government hoaxes. And when we get went away, I was talking about the Washington Nationals. And these are important because uh, we, we see part of the uh, attempts to manipulate the information. The government decided that the Washington National sightings were the result of temperature inversions, which means the there was a layer of warm air over a layer of cold air and it reflected radar ray, rays. Uh, it reflected uh, or, or deflected the um, viewing suggested that there were things in the air that weren't there and all kinds of things that can happen when you have a temperature inversion. Even though the radar returns were seen on three scopes at three separate locations, they didn't look like weather related phenomenon whatsoever. And that uh, when the fighter showed up, all the anomalous uh, blips on the radar disappeared. And when the fighters went away, they all returned suggesting something there. Uh, Leveland also kind of uh, reflects this government deceit. And it's an outgrowth of what the Robertson panel had to say that they, they needed to debunk UFOs. And what happened there was um, they determined that these sightings, and, and of course, I've mentioned this before, my book on Leveland goes into great detail into the witnesses and who did what and who saw what and where it was. But you have witnesses at at least 13 separate locations. And according to the sheriff, there were a lot more witnesses in a lot more locations. Having uh, car troubles, the close approach of the UFOs, the car stalled, the headlights faded, the radios were filled with static. When the UFO left, everything began to work again properly. The Air Force investigated over a period of seven hours on a Tuesday afternoon and determined that it was simply ball lightning. Now, in 1947, or I'm sorry, 1957, when the Leveland sightings took place, there was still a debate whether ball lightning even existed. So we're using a one unexplained phenomenon to explain another unexplained phenomenon. Uh, there's still a bit of a debate about whether or not ball lightning is a real thing, but it's very rare. It is very short-lived, but here's the point. The Air Force labeled the Leveland sightings as ball lightning, and here is an obvious case in which the explanation offered by the Air Force does not fit the facts, but nobody cared because everybody was arguing about the number of witnesses, a way of diverting the conversation. So we move beyond that. We get to the point where the Air Force is involved in discussions with uh, governmental officials, government scientists, and they're trying to determine how they can end the Air Force program. They don't like investigating UFOs, even though if you if we look at the Air Force charter, it's to keep unidentified aircraft, unidentified objects out of our airspace. That's their job. And they're saying, no, we don't want to do that anymore because we can't really identify what these things are. Uh, they talked about ways of doing that. And they came up with an idea of hiring a university faculty or university professors to investigate UFOs on a supposedly unbiased objective uh, level and determine what's going on. This was the Condon Committee. It was chaired by Edwin U. Condon at the University of Colorado in the, um, around 1966-1967. And uh, before they began the investigation, there was something called the Hitler Letter. It was written by an Air Force officer 
Robert Hippler, who to um, I think Robert Lowe of the University of Colorado study, telling them what we want you to find. We would like you to find out the Air Force has done a good job investigating UFOs, which if you look at the record, they didn't. We want you to find there's no national security implications. And we want you to uh, say we should end Project Blue because nothing of a scientific value can be found. Low responded said, yeah, we can do that. And that's exactly what they did. Before the investigation even began, the conclusions were written and they reached those, those same conclusions. When it was done in 1969, they came out and they said, you know, we've looked at this, we've studied the uh, documentation and we've decided there's nothing to UFOs. Even though they explained one of the cases as a uh, phenomenon so rare, natural phenomenon so rare it had never been seen before or since, which I think would be something you want to study. Uh, they said, no, there's nothing to us. We're not going to continue the study of UFOs. And their conclusions were exactly what, Lowe, uh, what Hippler and Lowe had agreed to years earlier. There was no national security implications, even though they ran into the national security implications in the Belt, Montana, uh, Maelstrom Air Force Base sightings that we've talked about in the past, that there was a national security implication. And when the scientists for the uh, Condon Committee arrived at Maelstrom Air Force Base talking to the UFO officer there, they talked about the sightings that had been going on in the Belt, Montana area. And then the scientists asked something about the missile silos that had been shut down. And the UFO officer was stunned that they would know about it. So I can't tell you about that. It's national security. They ran into national security and they said there's no national security implications. Well, clearly there were. And finally, they said that um, nothing, nothing could be learned by studying UFOs. Now we come to this era of UFOs and we find out, well, yeah, we, we need to study these things because there's things going on. We need to know. We need to get into and so obviously the conclusions were designed for one purpose and one purpose only to perpetrate, perpetrate another hoax on the UF, uh, UFO public and the, the general public that there was nothing to the UFO sightings. And yet they continued to investigate. They did something, they had something called Project Moondust. And um, Brad Sparks and I have discussed this and it may not have been a Project Moondust. There, there was a Moondust activity and the project officers were appointed, but there's a lot of documentation about moon dust. Moon dust was a real thing, and it was an investigation of UFOs, and you can find that. I found four cases in the Project Blue Book files labeled moon dust. So I, I, I did a book just recently. It's called Project Moon Dust, but what it says essentially is moon dust as a project didn't exist. They didn't have a headquarters. They didn't have an assigned staff, but when something came up, they appointed people to do the investigation under the auspices or the, the code name Moondust. So there was a, was a Moondust going on in that way. So we learned that we have this hoax that Project Blue Books ended, which it was. They weren't doing UFO investigations, which they were. And they were telling people, uh, there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. We see some of that in a, a special that was done in the late 1950s on CBS television with, with Donald Kehoe of NICAP, the civilian UFO researcher in the United States Air Force. CBS News agreed with the Air Force on how it was going to be run. So then when, Nike, when, when Kehoe went off script to talk about UFO sightings, they cut his mic because the Air Force wanted it done that way. So you get a picture of the UFO phenomenon that was not exactly uh, correct or accurate. The, the Air Force was manipulating the data. So, you know, it's, it's kind of fits into this whole thing, sort of the deep state in control of, of UFOs. So we, we've kind of talked about the 
Condon Committee here and what they what they did and how they investigated it. Condon, in fact, was at, I think it was Corning, New York, talking to a group of scientists and engineers there 18 months before the project ended. And he told them, and it's recorded in the newspapers, he told them, you know, I'm not supposed to uh, come to these conclusions for another 18 months, but there's nothing to this. Uh, so we've got sufficient documentation to show how this, this hoax of the Condon Committee was um, perpetuated and how it was perpetrated on the public. The other thing we see now, we have 50 years of scientists saying, well, there's nothing to UFOs because scientists looked at it and they couldn't find any evidence. But you look at the Condon Committee investigations, something like 30% of the sightings were unexplained. They didn't investigate Leveland, which was only 10 years old at the time, and most of the witnesses were still alive and they could have talked to them. They said, well, they said, well we couldn't find the cars, which of course they could have if they really wanted to. But um, they made these excuses to avoid the uh, cases that would um, be somewhat controversial. And yet they still couldn't explain all of them. The McMinnville photographs, and we've shown the, those here um, several times, uh, were unexplained at the time of the Condon Committee. And if you look at those photographs, there's only two explanations. It's either an alien spacecraft or it's a hoax. And there's no evidence that have been has been presented that good evidence that it's a hoax. There's some manipulated evidence that she's suggesting that, but there's really no good evidence for that. So you've got the, those photographs that have been, been overlooked. But I think that, that you see how the investigations through the end of Project Blue Book and, and then into the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s were manipulated so that there was nothing um, positive being said by the government about UFOs. It was those of us who believed in UFOs were engaged in conspiracy theories. We're conspiracy theorists. And that's a, a good catch-all to belittle and dismiss an argument you don't want to deal with. Well, I can't deal with the evidence, so I'm just going to be dismissive of the people involved in the discussion. Well, you know, they're just a bunch of UFO nuts. doesn't matter what their credentials are. And you take a look at some of the people who have studied UFOs. They're highly credentialed individuals. They're very good at what they do. They're very good scientists. And yet we're going to belittle them because they looked at UFOs. And we also see a manipulation of the scientific community to keep them from studying UFOs. They don't want to get involved with it because it looks it looks bad on the resume. Then they can they can be uh, ridiculed that way, and their jobs become um, endangered in that way. I did interview James Van Allen, and uh, when I interviewed him, he didn't mind talking about UFOs. He figured he was so um, well entrenched in the scientific community, they weren't going to really be able to do anything to them. And he was very candid in his invest in his interest in the UFOs, and. Um, his ideas on how to improve the investigations. And one of the things that you know, have to go into it as looking at it in a dispassionate way, don't get caught up in a bias. I have to prove it's a UFO, a flying saucer, an alien spacecraft, or I have to debunk it in some fashion. Don't get caught up in that sort of thing. So what we look at with the Condon Committee and the other scientific studies, they've all concluded that the, the um, phenomenon, the investigations, the way the Air Force wanted them concluded, but they um, haven't really explained anything. Uh, when they get done, the Air Force said, well, we had 702, I think, 702 sightings we couldn't identify out of the 12,000 we investigated. 
But the problem is, and I did, I did a quick survey of this, but four to 5,000 of the investigations were labeled scientific, uh, insufficient data for a scientific analysis. That means there's no explanation for it. It just kept out of the scientific category, or out of the unidentified category. And if you look at some of the explanations, you realize that 45 to 50% of the sightings were unidentified. And I think that's something important. When we come back here in just a moment, we're going to talk about the UAPs, which I now think of as UFOs. So we will be back right after this. So please stick around. And I am back once again, still alone, still isolated, but still talking. Uh, when we went away, I mentioned the um, latest in UFO investigations, where we are going with this. And this is uh, started with the release of the Nimitz videos, the uh, what was it, the gimbaled and the fast walker and whatever the heck it was off the USS Nimitz. And that the uh, Navy admitted that these were uh, actual cockpit videos from, from their fighters, which many took to believe the Navy saying, yes, they're real UFOs, a real alien spacecraft. And what they were saying, no, it's video that was captured by our fighter planes. We don't know what it is. But it inspired an awful lot of interest, which, which was kind of funny. When it, when it happened. And I thought because it had come out and the, the response by the Navy and the response by the news media, we were moving toward disclosure, which means the government's going to come out and say, yes, this is what we know about UFOs, what we know about flying saucers. I think in today's environment, we're moving away from disclosure and they're doing everything they can to hide this information, but that's just my opinion. Uh, we look at it from the point of view of the requirement uh, passed by the Congress saying that the um, military, the DOD, had um, 180 days, six months to come up with a report, and that report was going to be due in June of um, 2021. And it was, uh, I think, it's tasked to the Director of National Intelligence. And I think what happened was it, uh, the Director of National Intelligence and his pals there in the Intelligence Committee thought nothing was going to happen of it, and they didn't do anything with it. And suddenly, as the time limit began to expire as we moved closer to June of uh, 2021. Uh, and the interest in the media picked up and the interest in the UFO community was certainly already there. They realized they had to do something and threw something together really quick. And that was their C minus high school report where they admitted they had 144 incidents, but they didn't tell us what that, or 144 reports, didn't tell us what that meant. Didn't know if it was 144 incidents or uh, say 15 reports uh, or, or, or 144 reports of 15 incidents or, or exactly what it was. We didn't, we don't know anything about that sort of thing. And so when they said, you know, we, we explained all, but uh, we, we explained only one of them. People thought that was, was important. And they were given 90 days to come up with a secondary report, which they never did. We never saw the secondary report. So we looked at all of that stuff and we realized that a lot of it was eyewash, as we used to call the military. They were just throwing something together to please people and hoping it would go away. And it didn't really go away. And it ended up with another congressional mandate to create an office to investigate UFOs. And they were required to uh, issue a report, which we saw um, just in May, you know, with um, a couple of their people being in, in, interviewed and in, interrogated by Congress. And I, I don't know how many of you watched that thing. It lasted, according to my clock, 87 minutes. Others said it was 92 minutes, but who cares? It was an hour and a half. 
they showed little interest in the history of UFOs. And, th and this was kind of stunning because a number of these UFO incidents we, we've talked about in the past were a matter of national security. And, and, and during the discussion, the DOD representatives all suggested that they were looking at it as a matter of national security. Are these things observing our um, naval man maneuvers off both the uh, east and west coasts? Are they exhibiting uh, capabilities that, that outstrip anything that we have? Is, is there been a technological leap by our adversaries in some fashion that is a danger to our national security? Oh, all good questions and all proper questions, of course. Uh, but there was little interest in looking at the UFO aspect. They showed two crummy um, videos. Don't know why they weren't better prepared. One of the congressmen seemed to have been pretty prepared and asked about Maelstrom Air Force Base. And they said, well, we don't know anything about that. We haven't heard of that. And then one of them said, well, I, I, I've heard rumors about it. Uh, but the point is, they were talking about national security. And I would think one of the things they would do is look back at the history and see if national security was impacted by any of this sort of activity. And they didn't bother to do that. So they had very little interest in the history of UFOs. And I think that if you're going to do a study of something that kind of relates to UFOs, and we know there's been ongoing investigations since World War II about UFOs. And even though when our government said, well, we're not investigating UFOs after the um, um, Condon Committee of 1969, we know they did. There was, there was moon dust that went until 1985. We know it went there because it was um, talked about in various aspects and we had documentation about it. And when Cliff Stone had, I think it was Senator Jeff Bingaman query the Air Force about it, they said, there's no such project. When the document was presented to them, I said, well, yeah, there was that kind of thing going on, but we never used it. We could prove that was untrue too. So, I mean, here's another bunch of hoaxes that the government had perpetrated on us. They weren't doing that. After 1985, and I, I mentioned that date because Robert Todd wrote a letter to the various people involved. And he wanted to know what the new code name was, what the new code word was. And the, the response was, we can't tell you that. The code word is unreleasable. It is classified, which tells you there was another project. We just don't know what it's called, but there was another project that, that transcended uh, 1985. And then we come to 2004, and we end up with the Navy stuff going on, and there the naval investigations on. So we know that that's all uh, untrue. Uh, so when we're done with that, I was wondering the, what the Congress congressional investigation was going to do. And I wonder what the DOD was going to do in their investigation. And it seemed to me they're going to restrict it to just military sightings, not just pilots, but military sightings, people they can control because they're in the military and they have to work under the uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice and, and the various regulations that affect their, their work. They're going to probably ignore a lot of the UFO sightings that would be very good. Sure, there's an awful lot of nonsense going out there. And I've, I've joked with people about that. I think uh, Leslie Keene was talking about it being 90 to 95% of the UFO sightings are mundane. I think it's closer to 99%, but it really doesn't matter because it only takes one, uh, that sort of thing. But we don't get a real feel for the investigation is going. I think it's going to turn into another bureaucratic nightmare and somebody's going to decide that it's just not worth the effort and we're going to end up with the same thing we've had since 1947 in the investigation of UFOs. But one of the other great, and the great hoax, the great UFO hoax that I'm going to get to right now is the 19, 
1995 Air Force investigation of the Roswell crash. And I'm going to attack it from one very specific point, and that's Project Mulgram. The Air Force looked at possible explanations for what fell at Roswell. They're going to talk about um, it not being an aircraft accident. It's not a nuclear accident. It's not a rocket accident. It's nothing like that. All things that we had already said, they confirmed it for us. What they came up with was Project Mogul. And they would say that Project Mogul was a highly classified uh, balloon project run out of Alamogordo. And this is what fell on the Brazel Ranch. And this is what Brazel found. This is what he saw. They're going to tell you, and they, I think the skeptics have jumped on this bandwagon as well. They're going to say, well, these arrays were just huge. They were 600 feet long. They contained uh, Raywin radar targets, which are these metallic uh, foil things. And there's three of them on, on flight number two that you see here outlined in the Air Force report of what it looked like and how the array was arranged and what all was going on there. And this was what Mac Brazel found. And because it was this long involved array, they, um, Brazel couldn't identify it. And so he goes into the sheriff's office in Roswell, and I've always wondered why he went to Roswell instead of um, um, one of the other sheriff's offices. It might have been a little bit closer, but um, the Lincoln County Sheriff as opposed to the Chavez County Sheriff, I should say. Anyway, he goes, he goes in there and shows it to Sheriff, sheriff George Wilcox, uh, talks to him about this thing. Wilcox calls the Air Force, and Jesse Marcel goes out there, and he goes out to the ranch with uh, Sheridan Cabot, and they, they look at this thing. Their descriptions of what they saw out there, meaning the size of the array, and we have descriptions of what Marcel said, we have the descriptions of what uh, Cavett said, and they're, uh, they're, they disagree on, on it, uh, how lar large it was and what it looked like and that sort of thing. According to Marcel, they spent the day out there looking for or cleaning up the debris as best they could. They didn't make a dent in it. They needed more people to come out and do that. He sent Cavett back earlier in the afternoon to report to Blanchard. And then he um, filled his car with as much debris as he could. And he drove on home, showed it to his family, and then went out to the, um, went, went in, out to the base and talked to Colonel Blanchard about it. So what, we, what we've learned here is we've got this project in Alamogordo. The Air Force is telling, it was, telling us it was highly classified, and that was why People didn't know what was going on. Turns out what was going on in New Mexico wasn't classified at all. The project name wasn't even classified because it appears in the unclassified diary of Albert Crary. Uh, Charles Moore, who worked on the project with uh, Crary, said that they didn't know. The, it was so secret they didn't know the name of the project until years later. In the diary, Crary, Crary clearly mentions Mogul multiple times. So they knew they knew what it was. So it wasn't that. The purpose of, of, of what was going on, what the purpose of Mogul was to spy on the Soviets. They wanted to put a constant level balloons in the atmosphere with microphones on it to listen for the detonation of an atomic blast. That's what the purpose of Mogul was. That was classified because it was a spy project. What they were doing in, in New Mexico was trying to create a constant level balloon. And there could be many reasons you'd want to be able to put balloons at a specific area in the atmosphere for all kinds of scientific purposes, not just spying, but, but research purposes. So that was what they were attempting to do there. When we look at this, we learn from the Air Force that it was flight number four that Brazel found. 
And when we come back in just a moment, you can see flight number four there. We're going to discuss this in a little bit more detail because there are some per important aspects that have been overlooked in this whole thing as we study this. And I outline an awful lot of this in Understanding Roswell. So those of you who want to get more in-depth into this, you can take a look at that. You can also get the government-produced uh, book, um, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexican Desert, which was the report written by Colonel Richard Weaver, who's been on this program to talk about what he had seen and what he had done and how that project came together. So when we come back, we're going to take another look at these mogul balloons and exactly how that fits into the project. So we will be back right after this. So please stick around. And I am back. We're going to recap for a moment here on Project Mogul. We have Mac Brazel, the farmer, the rancher out in the New, New Mexican high desert near Corona. And he finds this debris scattered in his field, so densely packed the sheep refused to uh, cross him. He takes it to the sheriff. He takes samples of it to the sheriff. And there's a key. He takes samples of it to the sheriff. Sheriff doesn't know exactly what it is. He calls out to the base and Jesse Marcel shows up. Then Marcel can't identify it. So he and a counterintelligence aide, Sheridan Cavett, on orders from Blanchard, go out to the ranch to look at it. But here's the key. Samples of the debris had been taken to the sheriff's office. They would have known what it was because you see the description of this debris supposedly in the newspaper, and there's really nothing to it. He's got this bundle of sticks and metal foil type stuff that was um, uh, maybe five feet long, that sort of thing. But clearly it was nothing extraterrestrial. There was no reason for them to go out there. And had it been a mogul array, the rancher could have picked it up easily himself. So we look at the um, Air Force report. Well, let me, let me, let me, before I get to the Air Force report, let me mention one other thing. Marcel takes, supposedly takes some of the debris to uh, General Ramey at the Fort Worth Army Airfield at the next higher headquarters. And we see pictures of this. There's seven pictures of it that have been released that we know of showing clearly the remains of a Raywin target and the envelope from a deteriorated weather balloon in his office. Marcel said, that's not the stuff I found uh, when he was interviewed about that later. But there, there's a couple of points that would be made momentarily. So when we look at flight number two, which is that big long one that we saw earlier, we see there's ray wind targets on it. When they get to New Mexico, uh, we, we, we see how long this array is. We see the, the, the uh, Raywind targets, the, the two things at the top and one at the bottom of the third or the second column. We see the Raywind targets there. They're listed there. When we look at flight number five, which was the first flight in New Mexico, this flight didn't take place in New Mexico. This took place on the East Coast. This is not an array that was ever flown on the uh, uh, in New Mexico. When we look at the at flight number five, which is the shorter array, they'd reduced the size by a, a third. And we look at that display, there's no Raywind targets on it. This is the first flight that was flown in New Mexico. Flight number four, the culprit pointed out by the Air Force as the culprit in all of this, never flew. Flight number four was canceled. We have Dr. Crary's diary, his field notes, and he says the flight was canceled because there were clouds. They were not allowed to fly these long arrays in cloudy weather or at night because they were a hazard to aerial navigation. And you can imagine a 600 foot array, if it, it, an airplane hit it in some fashion, it could have disastrous results. 
So the arrays weren't flown at night. Flight number four is canceled. Now we look at flight number five's configuration. There's no Raywind targets. So what was found in Ramey's office? Where did that Raywind target come from? It certainly wasn't anything that Marcel brought from Roswell as part of the debris because there were no Raywind targets there. That suggests a deception. We also have the testimony of Phyllis McGuire, who is the daughter of the sheriff, and the sheriff's family lived above the, sh the sheriff's office in 1947, and she was there when uh, Brazel brought in the debris. So there are samples of the debris already in, in, in Roswell before Marcel even sees it. So you have to wonder then why would they go out there? It kind of explains that all the way. Now the skeptics will tell you, and what they will tell you is this, that yes, flight number four didn't fly, but they flew a cluster of balloons later in the day. Well, yes, they did. Charles Moore told me all about those. And again, in the documentation presented by the Air Force in their big thick um, uh, report, that uh, if you know, they couldn't launch the flight and the balloons were already filled. You can't put the helium back in the bottles from the balloons. So they created clusters of flights. And these are described as well as just a cluster of balloons. And um, usually what they did was fly it with a microphone, what they called a sonoboy, which is a, uh, well, basically it's a microphone is what it is. I was going to talk about submarine listening and sonar and all of that jazz, but you need to know that. Anyhow, is a microphone. And what they would do is then detonate things on the ground to see if the microphone would pick up the, the sound of the detonations. So flight number four was canceled. They flew a cluster of balloons. And Charles Moore, the guy at Mogul, told me specifically what it was. They didn't have Raywind targets on those. Later on, he began to talk about how everything had Raywind targets on it because he needed that for the pictures in Ramey's office. But the real point here is, I think it's late in July when you get the first... Um, configuration that has any Raywind targets on it. They weren't using radar to track these balloons in New Mexico in the beginning. They were using uh, uh, telescopes and things like that. And they could track it almost all the way to Roswell. And the only reason they lost sight of the one that went by Roswell was that the um, balloons had come down lower in the atmosphere and the mountains intervened so they couldn't see them anymore. They got within like 10 or 12 miles of Roswell before they lost sight of it. The other thing you have to know is Roswell was well aware of what was going on, the people at Roswell, because Crary, in fact, in his diary talks about how he had stopped in Roswell to get gas. They were driving military vehicles from the Alamogordo Army Airfield, and if they needed gas, and they had been out chasing a balloon that had come down near the Bottomless Lakes, which is a state park um, east of Roswell. And they were going back to Alamogordo and they had to stop at uh, Roswell to talk about it. Moore told me that they had actually gone to Roswell to ask for help in tracking their balloon arrays. And uh, the people at Roswell, the officers weren't having any of it because they didn't want to get involved with a bunch of nutty uh, college, college boys <laughs> tracking balloons. So they weren't involved. But the uh, they uh, knew what was going on. And Moore himself talked about how he had to stop at uh, Roswell once for gas, and they gave him all kinds of grief about it. And I don't understand that at all, but there seemed to be some animosity between um, Moore and the officers at Roswell. This was kind of his way of getting back at them. So where we are on Mogul, the problem with Mogul is flight number four, the name culprit, didn't fly. Clearly documented that. The skeptics will argue with me all day long. What we know is a cluster of balloons flew, but the cluster of balloons was not a full array. We know that flight number five was the first uh, flight that uh, was launched in uh, New Mexico. 
And it's in the in the, the records as that. And it actually is the first successful flight in New Mexico because flight number four was canceled. I don't know why they didn't redesignate flight number four, why they redesignated flight number four, flight number five. I have no re, no knowledge of why they would do that, but they did that. And they did it in, in uh, the earlier balloon launches on the East Coast as well. They, they skipped a number like that. We know what the configurations were. We know... Um, the sequence of events. We know that Charles Moore manipulated the data to put flight number four, which didn't fly close to the Brazel Ranch, but the closest he could do it using the weather data, which much of which I supplied to him and he later denied, um, didn't get it within, got it within 17 miles of the Brazel Ranch. Well, 17 miles doesn't do you any good. Uh, you have to put it on the ranch. Um, the rancher himself said that he'd found weather observation devices on two other occasions, and this was nothing like those, but had it been mobile, it would have been exactly like those. Um, there was no discussion of a lot of strings or rope or twine or webbing to create this, this long or um, string of balloons or anything like that found with the debris. And in fact, Jesse Marcel Jr. in discussing it with um, James Anderson, who was James McAndrew, I'm sorry, James McAndrew, who was one of the officers working with um, Colonel Weaver on the project, couldn't answer the question why there was none of that described in um, the records or why none of that was seen in the photographs taken in Ramey's office. It's a sort of a conundrum there. So I think where we, where we are on that is we look at the Roswell case, there's no explanation. There's no terrestrial explanation that I know of. Doesn't mean that sometime in the future, something isn't gonna pop up and say, yeah, that's what it was. I can think of no classified project that would be, would, would still need to be classified unless it did something heinous, like um, try to launch some people in a, into space and it failed badly and that's what they found. Um, and they would keep that, but, but, but everybody involved in that is long gone so that there would be really no repercussions for it other than people pointing at the finger and saying, geez, why would you do something like that? Um, but we have no explanation for what fell at Roswell. And I think that's an important point to make. There is no explanation. Does that get us to the extraterrestrial immediately? No, it doesn't. It's suggestive of it, but it doesn't get us there. And we have to find something else. Is that sufficient evidence for some people to say, yeah, it was an alien spacecraft? Sure, there's a lot of people that say that. I lean in that direction, but I would like to see something more tangible. I would like to see the government documentation that relates to Roswell, that sort of thing. I mean, government documentation that hasn't been manipulated over the last uh, 75 years, something like that. But we don't have that. What we have is, is a mystery. And I think that's where we are. And I think that if we're going to be honest about all of this, that's what we have to say. We're locked in with a mystery. We know something fell. Everybody agrees. It's just a question of what it was. I don't think they've explained it. Um, I get the feeling that some of the skeptics aren't real happy with the explanation, but they've kind of forced themselves into it and they're going to stick with that because the alternative is, well, it's not explainable and maybe it is an alien spacecraft. And I think that's where we're going on that. I think that pretty well covers some of the hoaxes and the big hoax was this Project Mogul one. I think that, and it's kept, kept us going for, Oh, quite a long time here discussing um, whether it was Project Mogul. I mean, there's a lot of UFO hoaxes that relate to Roswell. And I think of MJ-12 and the alien autopsy as examples. Uh, the crash at Aztec is another great hoax, but those were not perpetrated by the government. Um, 
All of the other hoaxes were perpetrated by civilians who had a rooting interest in perpetuating the hoax and that sort of thing. Those of you who are interested in my take on this and a thick document relating to this with some of the more explanation, detailed explanations of mogul and how the evidence traces out, take a look at Understanding Roswell. You can find it at Amazon right now this minute. Um, and I think you'll get a better idea of where the investigation stands legitimately, not with all the hyperbole hyped, uh, piled upon it, but where it stands today is best we can understand it. And it's under, like I said, it's understanding Roswell. If you like the book, give it a rating. The other book I'd like you to take a look at is Leveland, because I think it explains another classic sighting in great detail. And I think it shows where the government has kind of manipulated the data. And of course, if you're into real conspiracies and you like that sort of thing, take a look at the UFOs in the deep state, and I think you'll get something there. Next week, I hope to have Mike Schratt on here talking about his experiences with UFOs. And uh, in the coming weeks, I will have uh, uh, Ron, who was supposed to be on today, he will be on on the 29th. And I will be back in about 167 hours with a guest this time, I hope. So thank you for tuning in.